I do see a change. And I do believe that at least in my environment, that they're not looking at this as a trend or a moment in time. This is how it's supposed to be. And this is how it will continue to be. And as long as I'm a part of it, I'm going to make sure that people that feel like there isn't a change, I have no voice, I don't feel safe, that I can make them feel safe, that I can let them know they do have a voice and that we're listening. Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple. Humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Truth According To was started to amplify the voice of the everyday individual. Our next guest, however, is extraordinary. Why? Because he wears his heart on his sleeve. They don't make them like Edward Gonzalez anymore. And it's no surprise he's the DEIA lead at NASA Goddard Heliophysics. I'm so excited to be sharing his wisdom, his lived experience with you, our guest today. Welcome to the show, my brother. How's it going today? Excellent. How are you doing, V? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks. Yourself? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's fall. The trees are changing colors. Uh, amazing place to be this time of year. Amazing. Now, I noticed something with your chain. What What is that? That's That's new for me. I haven't seen that before. Yeah, so recently I was at a Native American uh, conference um, in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I was able to obtain this from an elder, uh, and it's a feather, which holds a lot of meaning in Native American traditions. Wow, it's it's really nice, and it caught my attention. And it's also Native American Month, correct? That's correct. It is Native American Heritage Month, and just so much to be thankful for and, and so much to recognize, so... That's amazing. Now, you grew up in, in California. What was that like? I mean, you know, growing up in the California IA, as they would call it. Yeah, there's nothing like California. You know, I live in Washington, D.C. now. I uh, moved here a few years ago. But um, initially growing up, uh, it was like, and I'm dating myself, like Leave it to Beaver. Um, you know, manicured front lawns, uh, you know, kids on bikes, touch football on the street. Um, but I didn't do a whole lot of that. I did a lot of things late. I didn't learn to ride a bike until like I was 10. And the reason for that was I was a really nerdy kid. I loved watching science fiction. I loved watching documentaries. And a lot of that had to do with my father. You know, when I was five, he said, I want you to watch this with me. And it was the Apollo 13 uh, thing that happened. Now, not the movie, the actual mission where the astronauts we're not only not going to land on the moon, they may not make it back to Earth. So watching the flight director, Gene Kranz, go through this amazing process with the rest of the team of NASA, they brought those astronauts home safely. So for me, it was something that I've always wanted to do. Now, to get back to California, again, it was just a beautiful time. My father had his own business, but he was working long hours, 12, 16 hours a day, sometimes seven days a week. And then eight days before my 13th birthday, on Christmas Day, he passed. He died. I believe he worked himself to death. I really believe that. But prior to that happening, we would take two vacations a year. We'd go to Hawaii, took us to New York. We did all these amazing things. Every Friday, we looked forward to going to this amazing restaurant that 
most people wouldn't, you know, at the time in my neighborhood wouldn't be able to go to. It was an amazing time. But after that, it all came to a screeching halt. And coincidentally, the neighborhood changed. Different people moved in, different, different people moved out. And it became very gang infested. And it was a very difficult time to grow up in that neighborhood and also being police profiled. So it was tough. First part up to the age of about 11 and a half, 12. Great. After that, not so great. So you watched that community sort of go through a transition period then almost to being that leave it to beaver sort of like everything is awesome and such a great community neighborhood to sort of noticing an infestation of, of different community members come in and watching it erode over time. What was that like in terms of environment for you growing up then? Wow. So did you see that movie Lean on Me about the principal? Absolutely. Uh, okay. You remember that part in the very beginning of the movie where you see him at the school. And again, the school's perfect. No graffiti. Hallways were clean. And then during that part in the beginning, you see it change. And you see graffiti on the walls. You see um, you know, iron bars on windows. And it just changed dramatically. That's exactly what my neighborhood did. It just completely flipped. Now, I'm happy to announce now, because my mom still lives there, and I do go back home, you know, three or four times a week. The neighborhood is back to leave it to Beaver. So That's amazing. So they were able to transition out of that back into sort of what you remember and is nostalgic yes. for you as a child. Yes. That's amazing. And you know what? That's cool that your mom still lives there where she was able to sort of weather that um, storm, if you will, in terms of the transition and, and, and stay to where she calls home. And I think that's really important yes. for a lot of people is that home is where you plant your roots, right? And I think that she just said, this is where I'm at. This is where I feel comfortable. Yep. And whatever's going on around me, I still have a home here. That's correct. That's amazing. So listen, one of the things that is synonymous with sort of California and, and with you know opening up the conversation around uh, diversity was the Rodney King incident that happened. And I mean, was that something that you were aware of, that you were around when it was happening? Because you talked about watching Apollo on TV. Did you see that as well uh, as you lived in California? Yeah, um, I had a front row seat. And I don't know if we've ever talked about this in the past, but the one of the first professional jobs that I had was working for a law firm. And I was able to quickly climb that corporate ladder because the people that were working there, and I just got an entry-level position in a mailroom, they didn't care. They were taking two-hour lunches. They would come in late. They'd leave early. And I was there for a couple of years. And then I was able to take my experience and move over to one of the largest law firms on the West Coast, O'Malveny and Myers. Now, the managing partner at that time was the Honorable Warren Christopher. If you don't know that name, I encourage you to Google that person. He's amazing. Was amazing. He was also Secretary of State in the Clinton administration. So where does this fit into your question? Right after the Rodney King incident, the city of Los Angeles decided to put together a commission called the Christopher Commission, which happened to be at the law firm that I was working at. And I was actually coordinator for one uh, for that commission. Now, not the coordinator. There was a lot of us. There was a lot of logistics involved with, you know, centering around that commission. But I really felt like I had a front row seat to what had happened. And then, of course, the L.A. riots happened as well. And it came very close to where I was working at the time. Now, it wasn't in South Central L.A., but I remember going to work 
and having the National Guard out there with their weapons. And it's pretty wild working in that environment right around that Rodney King incident. Absolutely. And then, like you said, having a front row seat to probably see things that most people would not be privy to, to understand this at a little different level than others would have. Now, let's fast forward because, I mean, almost two years ago now, we had another incident where a black man has a knee on his neck and unfortunately passes. And my question to you is that Rodney King over here, George Floyd over here, there's about a two decade span of time. Are we making progress? Or are we just sort of having some of these things happen over and over again? What What are your thoughts on this? Uh, and I'm glad that you brought that up as well, uh, that unfortunate incident as well. So that that is like my bookends, if you will, my left and my right bookend. Um, I didn't go to school to be a diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility person, uh, someone to look out for the BIPOC community, black, indigenous, professional of colors, people of color. So to your question, when the Rodney King incident happened, I remember really feeling the color of my skin at that time. I really felt it more than I ever had in my life. I think everybody did that was a minority, a person of color. And unfortunately, there was some recommendations that were made and we need to treat people of color better. But did it actually happen? No, it didn't. It was a moment in time. But now after the George Floyd incident, and I can only speak from my own environment, I can tell you that NASA and its leadership, they immediately started having listening sessions. They immediately started having workshops and bringing people in to educate people, to talk about white privilege and what does that mean? Because a lot of people didn't understand. You'd have somebody in a meeting saying, what do you mean my white privilege? I worked very hard to get to where I'm at. But then they didn't realize, well, maybe you were back in school getting ready to graduate and your car broke down. Maybe your parents were able to send you 1500 or two grand to fix your car, or maybe send you a ticket so you could fly home for the holidays. That's the privilege. We didn't have that. If our car broke down, we were on a bike on foot or on a bus. If we weren't, we weren't able to go home for the holidays, most likely. We were literally stuck in our dorms, cafeteria closed, and we had to have whatever we could grab locally that was open during those holiday times. You know, it's little things like that. My point, though, is to say that, to say this, is I do see a change. And I do believe that, at least in my environment, that they're not looking at this as a trend or a moment in time. This is how it's supposed to be. And this is how it will continue to be. And as long as I'm a part of it, I'm going to make sure that people that feel like there isn't a change, I have no voice, I don't feel safe, that I can make them feel safe, that I can let them know they do have a voice and that we're listening. I love that. And, you know, one of the things that I always look towards is being able to, once you walk in the door, open the door for someone else. And I think that one of the things that I am attracted to you with regards is your openness and willingness to advocate for others and to be a champion for others. And you've had a, a, a winding road, if you will, to get to NASA. Do you want to maybe dig in, in in a couple of minutes to be like, here's where I wanted to get to and this is the road it took me to get there? Because it wasn't the straight and narrow for you, right? It was, it was no. very winding. No, it really wasn't. You know, the path to NASA, to NASA rather, it's not linear. 
uh, there's so many different ways that you can get there. So to give advice to others as well, for me, I got my girlfriend pregnant right out of high school. So I wasn't able to continue my education at that time. I had to stop my education, get into the workforce, benefits and, and all of that. And then while I was working at the firm, NASA was never far from my mind, but I wasn't a scientist. I wasn't an engineer. I had a niche position. Um, I could evaluate metrics. I could talk about education. I could transfer something that was technical and put it in a People Magazine level, say the Mars mission. And I could talk about that in a way that everybody could understand, that kids could understand, you know, talk to our youth. So I was able to finally, after 14 years, to turn my experience that I had at the firm, working with people, working with underserved, underrepresented people, to working with underserved, underrepresented communities. And that was the niche position that opened at NASA. But it took me, oh my goodness, I don't know, 10 interviews to, to finally clinch the position. So again, what would have been the proper route? I could go to a community college, apply for internships, and then once I get there, let them know that you can't exist without me. I'm going to give you the best that I have. I'm going to work really hard, and then you're going to make me an offer. Or if I'm not finished with my education, you're going to invite me back next summer or next fall, and we're going to continue this relationship. And when I'm done, I've got a job waiting for me. That is a very nice path to NASA that I wish I would have taken. Had I taken that path, I would have been working with NASA probably at the age of 21, 22. But instead, I didn't get there till the age of 36. It took that long for me to gain the experience necessary to get to this prestigious organization, agency. But I don't recommend that path to anybody. There's a lot of different ways and a lot of linear paths to get there. That's amazing. And you know, it proves your resilience to really set yourself out for a target, know that this is sort of where you want to go. And almost that whatever it takes attitude, which is a very old school in some respects attitude as to how we get things done. We're just, you know, I tell people for myself, I'm sometimes too stupid to quit because I just want something <laughs> that I'm just going to go after it and I'm going to make it happen. Now, you're a huge advocate for STEM. Where yes. does that passion come from? The, the passion comes from something that happened to me when I was 14. Now, prior to my dad passing away, I was a straight A student. I was in the mentally gifted minors program and was doing extremely well, but not going to lie to you right after that happened, I was very angry and I didn't care. But to even catapult me even further away from education, I was walking home from baseball practice. And this is a year after my father had passed away. And I was pretty close to my house and I heard a, a siren, another and another. And pretty soon there was 12 police cars chasing me. Now, I wasn't running or anything, but I was kind of walking with a purpose. And they pulled up in front of me. Shotguns, handguns, uh, police dog, helicopter. I'm thinking, what's going on? I'm looking behind me. Is there somebody that, should I run? Should I be scared? Well, they were coming after me. Well, apparently there was a burglary in the area, but it turned out the suspect was 6'4", blonde haired in his 30s. I was 5'5", five, five, a buck five at the time. I was a tiny guy. So because that happened so close to my school and to my, in my neighborhood, a lot of teachers saw that. A lot of parents saw that. And that labeled me. 
So part two of this problem that this developed was making a complaint to the police department because they beat me up pretty good. But by making the complaint, I had then put my name on blast. So if I was walking to school, the chances of me getting pulled over on foot was pretty great. And then once I started driving at 16, I was getting pulled over four, five, six times a week. So here's the thing. I'd get to school late and the teachers wouldn't help me. I wasn't able to retake tests. I was at detention every Saturday because I was late and not because of anything that I did. They made me late. They'd pull me over. They'd handcuff me. They'd put me in their car. They'd detain me and then they'd let me go. And I learned my lesson. There was no way I was going to complain anymore to the police department. So it was something that I dealt with all the time. So because I wasn't able to get a good education and I'm thinking, what could I have possibly accomplished at a young age had I been able to have somebody look after me and to be able to have that STEM education in school, the sky would have been the limit for me. So I want to make sure that people that are in high school, in middle school, in elementary school, or an undergrad, that they take full advantage of the things that they have in front of them. Stay in STEM because that opens up so many doors for you. The possibilities are infinite. You just have to do the work, have a vision, have a goal, have a dream and follow it. Because believe me, if you don't make a plan, the street's going to make a plan for you and you're not going to like it. You need to make a plan and follow it. I love that. If you don't make a plan, the street's going to make a plan for you. And that's that's very true, unfortunately. And I mean, yes. you know, the, the one thing that I didn't expect to hear there was how you were interrupted by these officers, sometimes daily, and how the impact of that sort of ripple effect, if you will, to your education and sort of what that did to probably a very young, impressionable young man who had been going through some challenges based on the fact that his father had just passed as well. Does that still sit with you today, however many years later? Because you recall that like it was yesterday. Yeah, it, it, it ruined me. You know, here's the other thing, too. I'll tell you another quick story. I had took a month off after my father's funeral. Now, mind you, that month off was horrible. My birthday kind of came and went without any recognition at all. I ran away from home for four days, came back home, and nobody knew I was gone, right? So I'm very angry. My mom, bless her heart, she loved my father. He never raised his voice, never raised his hand. One of the most romantic guys I've ever seen. So I couldn't understand then, but I get it now, why she was so depressed. She'd go into her room, and I didn't see her for a long time. And if I did, it was for just minutes at a time. So now I went from a very structured environment to no environment at all. I didn't have a time to be in the house. When the street lights came on, that was trouble time for me. Where other kids were going home to have dinners with their families, I didn't have that. So again, being this really, really angry kid, it just changed me so much. Anyway, back to your original question. I'm sorry. I'm on a rant here. Um, when I first went back to school, my friend who was sitting next to me, he didn't know what to say to me. What do you say to somebody that lost their father? So what did he do? He thought he'd make me laugh. So he got a rubber band 
and shot the teacher right in the head. Now, as a kid, that was pretty funny. And it worked because I looked up and all of a sudden I see this rubber band flying through the air in slow motion and hit him right in the forehead. So, of course, my friend looks the other way. I'm looking right at the teacher because he goes, hey, check this out. Well, the teacher pointed at me and went like this. And I said, I didn't do anything. And he said, I don't care. Come here. I didn't listen to him. So what did he do? He got up and he grabbed me right here. So I immediately pushed his arm away and I pushed him and unfortunately he fell. That was the first time in my life at that point that I had to wear handcuffs. So because of what was happening to me at the time, it's almost like people pointing the finger saying you're no good. So I became no good. I hung out with the wrong people. I made a lot of bad decisions. But at the end of the day, I think what saved me was my dad's words, because there was a lot of times where I thought, is this going to be, is this going to turn out well? It's probably not. So maybe I should go in the other direction. And I think that's what ultimately saved me at the end. And then also too, getting my girlfriend pregnant turned out to be a blessing. Wow. Your story, there's, there's some, the, the, the choking where, where we put his, hand on your throat I've had a very similar situation happen to me and it just brought back a flood of memory because you know people always look at people and say why are you like this why are you like this not understanding that there's things that are happening within people that other people can never realize and that's why leading with empathy and kindness and compassion for other people sometimes is a great route Unfortunately, when we're younger, we don't have those competencies to understand that. But as we get older, hopefully we get wiser and we can start to realize these things and, and, and hopefully encourage others. So what words would you impart? Because like you said, you would remember your father's words. If an audience member is listening today and they're struggling or their child is struggling, because I have friends who feel like they don't understand their children. I know you're a great dad. What would you tell them? if they felt like their child was struggling like you were struggling at that time? I think the most important thing is, and let me say this, you know, my children are now adults and I have grandchildren. Okay. Now, the reason that I moved here is I met the most incredible woman in the world and we're now married and she has small children. And I've had the pleasure of helping to raise them when they were young. So now I've been with her for about four years. Uh, the youngest is in sixth grade, eighth grade, and a junior in high school. So the mistakes that I made with my own children, I am not going to make with these kids. I, I feel bad and I wish I could turn back the hands of time, but children don't come with instructions. You've got to kind of figure it out. And again, I've been given the opportunity to do better this time. And the one thing that I would tell parents right now is to listen to your kids. A lot of times when we're at work in the workplace, I'll give you an example of that. You're walking with a purpose this way and I'm walking this way. Hey V, did you have a great weekend? I'm not even waiting for a response, I'm still moving, right? And we tend to do that with our children too. We don't listen because we think that no matter how their day went, ours was worse. Oh, you think you had a bad day. Wait till you get to the workplace and you're in the, no, they're in their environment right now. 
And whatever they're going through is real. So we need to listen to that without any judgment. The one thing that parents can give their children right now is this. When their kids come to you with something, whether it's an identity crisis, bullying, whatever the case may be, is say, would you like me to give you a response or would you just like me to listen right now? Because sometimes they just want you to listen. And that's so important. So if we could give them that gift, and I do give that gift to my bonus children, I'll just listen. If they want advice, I will give it to them. And I will make sure that they know it's my opinion. It may not work for them, but this is how I might handle that particular situation. So I think there's that. And then for the kids that are listening, what are the things that you can do to be successful? Number one, it's never too soon to start building your network. Build your network, reach out to people, ask questions, get a mentor, not just one, but a series of mentors, whether it's an educational academic mentor, somebody in the workplace, once you start working, if you're in a relationship, get a relationship mentor. You want a team of people that you can go to. And that's so important. The second thing is your character. I'll use you as an example. The moment that I met you, if I had forgotten your name or the content of our conversation, I didn't forget and I'll never forget how you made me feel. You made me feel important. You made me feel safe. You made me feel vulnerable. And that's so important. And if you can radiate that out to the world, everyone's going to want to help you. But remember that while you're there, you want to help others too. I'm here for you. And if you can retaliate, great. But I'm not expecting you to. It's this give and take. And you got to give action to get action. That's so important. The third thing is your, your skill set. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? If you're trying to be an electrician, for example, do you know the latest and greatest tools that electricians are using right now? If you don't, you better find out and you better learn how to do that. Because if you get that interview, they're going to ask you that question. Or if you're a juggler, right? Are you juggling the latest things? You need to make sure that you're on top of that. And then finally, you're grinding your hustle. If you set your alarm for 6 a.m., and you wake up at five, get up, make your bed, get dressed, wear something that you feel is going to pop today and that's going to be you. Read something, listen to a podcast, listen to your podcast, right? You'll get a whole extra hour of time. What is the flip of that? You go back to sleep and you're going to be in the deepest sleep you've ever had the whole night and your alarm's going to go off and you're going to hit snooze. Then you're going to hit snooze again. And instead of making your bed and wearing something nice that you picked out, you're going to grab whatever isn't wrinkled. You're not going to grab a meal. You're not going to listen to that podcast. You're going to run out the door completely unorganized. And then you're going to come home and guess what? Your bed's not made. And that's how your day is going to be. So those are the four things that I would like to say that I do say to my mentees of a recipe for success. That's amazing. And I love, you know, the correlation as I'm listening to you sort of sound off on the wisdom is the fact that so much of it is also transferable to DEINA. Because yes. when you really look at the people that you're trying to help, you're trying to listen, you're trying to understand, you're trying to build a way and infrastructure that supports all people. And you don't find that out by thinking you know everything it's by understanding the needs of those within your organization so i love that and and there is no instruction manual right there are ideologies there are things that have worked for some organizations but maybe not your organization it's really about understanding best practices 
getting involved with the industry, really understanding. And I met you when you were almost brand new to sort of your role. Yes. And you've grown so tremendously in that role. You've given us some parenting advice. What advice could you give to someone who's a fellow DEIA practitioner or in a role within their organization spearheading the charge of this way that we need to make for all people to feel welcome within the organization? What, what would you give people as some actionable advice? Number one, be your authentic self. Don't ever lose that identity. It's so important. Um, I had shared this with you, and it was actually in an article in Inc. Uh, that came out yesterday, um, and I was quoted on this. In, in 2008, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a memo went out saying to everybody, be your authentic self. If you have tattoos, piercings, if your hair is blue, you know, whatever the case may be, come and be yourself. As long as it's not offensive, as long as it's not going to offend anybody, come and be your authentic self. That changed the landscape of JPL. Now, I can't speak for that center now, but I can sure speak to it then. It was an amazing thing. So again, to answer your question, be your authentic self. And if you are somebody that's new to the role or you've been in the role for some time, how can I make people feel safe? Well, again, I repeat, let people be their authentic self. The other thing, too, is how can you make people feel safe? Encourage the people that are in leadership to do wellness checks with their people and just say, hey, Vic, how are you doing today? Maybe plan on doing that every single Monday. And it's like, wow, they're actually asking how I'm doing. Listening and reacting. You know, maybe I noticed that you worked the entire weekend. I'm going to ask you why. And not because I'm angry, but because I'm concerned. I want you to have that work balance. Also, too, if I send out an email and you get my signature, you're going to see on there that it says, please do not feel that you need to answer this email if it was sent after six or if it was sent on the weekend. How many times, and I know that you've been on the receiving end of this, have we come to work on a Monday because our boss sent an email late Friday or over the weekend and we're not in a position to respond to it because either A, we have a second job, we're balancing family life, and then we have that team meeting on Monday and our boss says, I sent everybody an email, I need everybody's feedback now. We haven't been able to respond to that because of mitigating circumstances. Don't do that to people. If you're gonna send out that email, send it out in a way that it's scheduled, where it's gonna go out between office hours and everybody has a chance to read it at the same time. And now nobody feels like, man, I'm way behind these people. I'm the last person on the greeting team, right? Everyone's going to feel appreciated. And everyone's going to appreciate that you took the time to do that and make everybody feel equal and important, safe. That's, that's amazing. It seems like you really have put on some empathetic shoes to understand where other people are coming from because at the end of the day, I know you're not out there doing a second job or any of these things today, but you probably understand what it was like for people yes. who had to do that and yes. can empathize with that and can appreciate where people are coming from and try to be inclusive of that story because it may not be everybody's story, but there are people who that story does belong to. Correct. Now, 
you're, like I said, a huge advocate for STEM, but you're especially sort of got a soft spot for those coming from marginalized communities who may not have the same direct linear path to NASA. For someone who might be coming from that sort of background, but has the aspiration to make it to this prestigious organization, what advice can you give them? It, it don't give up. You know, a couple of things, and, and we could talk about this at another time, but don't let imposter syndrome uh, dictate your life. You know, if it happens, and then we're all going to go through that, that, that's okay. Sometimes being in a room where you're not the smartest person in the room is a great thing. I think that if I was the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. I appreciate not being because I can ask questions. I can learn, right? The second thing is, again, to have a plan. And if you don't have a plan, street's going to make one for you. Execute that plan every day. And what is it? Okay, I need to have a 3.0 in order to get an internship at NASA. So I need to make sure that every day I'm doing what I need to do. Maybe I don't need to go to that party on Friday night. Okay, maybe I need to stay in do my homework. I've got a test on Monday, whatever the case may be, but my goal has to be 3.0. If I have a 3.0, then myself as a mentor, as somebody that works at NASA and somebody comes to me, I can help you. If you've got a 2.3, I cannot. So you need to focus. Now, again, you have people that are in school that have one or two jobs, right? And sometimes it's tough to get to that 3.0. The only thing that I can suggest is look at 165 hours in a week you know, 56 hours for sleep, you know, 40 hours for school or for work or for a combination of the two and just try and see where you can get a tutor or get group help or something because you got to get to that 3.0. That's got to be the goal. And then after that, then there's so many doors you can knock on. At NASA, they uh, consist of civil servants, 30%, 70% contractors. So you can go to nasa.gov right now and see what positions are available. You can also go to USA Jobs and see what positions are available. You can go to the individual websites of each of the NASA centers and also see what's available. That's three doors that I just gave you to knock on. Then you have contract agencies that feed into each of these NASA centers. Now, I'm not going to say the names of them. You could easily Google and find out the names. But let's just say there's 20 that happens to feed into Goddard. That's 20 more doors I just gave you. And you can get a two-week contract with contracting agency B, and they get you a two-week contract to work at NASA. Well, now you're there. You're on the other side of the fence. For that two weeks, show them who you are. Talk to people, ask questions, network, and do a great job. And either A, they're going to extend your contract, and guess what? You are now a part of NASA. Or... Maybe you look for that opening and you become a civil servant. There are so many different ways to get into NASA. You just have to find the door that has your name on it that's going to be answered. I love that. And, and, and everything that I heard, it was just resourcefulness, right? Like it's grit, determination and resourcefulness because I would have never thought of those 20 something odd doors that you just provided. Right. But for someone who wants to get into NASA, it's really about understanding if this is my goal, how do I get there? Right. And this is something I know that you had the experience and, and may still be doing it to tour with none other than Christopher Gardner, who is 
the individual from the movie Pursuit of Happiness with with Will Smith. Yes. And his story is one of, of true resilience and setting that goal and really moving towards where he wanted to go with a young child. How much can we learn from what Chris had done to what people need to do today for the things that they truly want? See, and that's the thing. So for Chris, he was doing completely doing something else. He was not investing. He was, that wasn't his thing. He was working in the medical field at the time and not doing very well. And he was in San Francisco and saw somebody pull up in a Lamborghini. And he asked the guy two questions. What do you do and how do you do it? That was the beginning of his resilience. He started going to that same building that that guy walked in and started asking questions, questions and networking. It's so important to network. He was building his network before LinkedIn even started, right? Asking questions that people started to see him every day and became familiar with him. So now before I get back to finishing Chris's story, let me share this. Say I met you somewhere or I heard about your podcast and I just go to LinkedIn, connect with Victor and you, oh, okay, this is a student, an undergrad or somebody, I'll, I'll accept that. Now what? You've got to do more than that. I have so many students that will then connect with me on LinkedIn, but they don't leave me a message. They don't send me that, how can I do what you do? Can you help me? Can you look at my resume? You know, any of that. Or I'm trying to connect with you, Victor, and it's like, look, I've seen your podcast. It's absolutely amazing. Would love to talk to you about how did you come up with the format? Whatever the case may be, let's have a conversation, okay? So now I meet somebody, they are a scientist or they're research-based, and this person is resilient with me. They check in with me once a week. They've actually reached out to me to talk to me about maybe a presentation that I gave. And now I know who this person is. Three weeks later, I'm in a meeting and somebody says, we've got some funding to bring in three interns for heliophysics. Does anybody know of anyone? I do. This person has been resilient and has reached out to me. Again, this network thing. So for Chris, one of the guys that he had been talking to every day, going to that same building, said, Chris, yesterday we had a meeting. We're starting an internship program. Here's an application. Apply. Chris not only applied, he nailed it. They picked one person out of 1,400 and he got the position. Why? Because he wanted it. And every morning he woke up and said, I'm going to do this. He only had six hours to do 10 hours worth of work. He had to leave at the six hour mark to go pick up his kid who was in daycare where everybody else stayed for another four hours. He had to leave. That is resilience. That is, I'm going to do this and nobody's going to stop me. I'm going to make this happen. And well, Chris is doing pretty well for himself now. And you know, what's crazy is that we talk about Chris, but in the short time that I've known you and we've talked a bunch, we've texted a bunch, you have demonstrated that same resiliency. And anyone who wants to make a path to NASA, all you have to do is look at Edward and understand that if he can do it, you can do it. Because at the yes. end of the day, there is nothing stopping you other than yourself. Yes. And I love that you're out there advocating now to bring more people because you, you've you gotten in the door, 
you're holding that door for others to come in. And I just want to say thank you for sharing these actionable pieces of intel and wisdom that anyone, regardless if you're young, you're middle-aged, because look at you, 36 is when you walked in the door. Yep. For some people, they're so stuck in their, their career or what they thought they wanted, whereas you just said, you know what, this is what I've always wanted, and I'm going to keep pressing. And here you are today talking and advocating for others to come and join that organization. And I love the work that you're doing to ensure that when people get there, they feel welcome. Thank That's you. That's amazing. Now, I ask this question to every single one of our guests because we're trying to work on solving this thing called DEI. How do you think as a society we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? One of the questions that I ask when I'm doing a presentation on diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility is, you know, every year when we go to school, during the summer, we'd have an opportunity to quote unquote, reinvent ourselves. Um, and then we'd come back to school and we could reinvent ourselves. Because of the pandemic, as a society, we can also reinvent ourselves and we can make sure and allow people to be their authentic self. And instead of questioning why embracing their culture, whatever it may be, you know, when you get into that Lyft or Uber or taxi, and you're just making conversation, don't make that conversation of, oh, so where are you from? Oh, I'm from Baltimore. No, no, I mean, like you have an accent, where are you from? Oh, well, I was born here. No, I mean, like your parents, just ask their ethnicity and embrace that. And if you wanna ask really nice questions because you are curious and you want to respect and celebrate their ethnicity, then that's great. Make sure your intentions are good and respect everybody regardless of what their gender or their background or their age, it doesn't matter. We're, we're all human beings and we all matter. So for me, what is it that I'm gonna do that I'm no longer gonna do before the pandemic? And that is I'm going to stop. And if I ask somebody how they're doing, I'm gonna listen. I'm not just gonna say it because it's a thing to say, I'm gonna listen. And I'm going to do wellness checks with my friends and my family because I don't know. Everybody has a story and I want to make sure that everybody's okay. So every day I dedicate a moment of time to reach out to those that I haven't reached out to in the past week, two or month and just say, I'm just calling to see how you're doing. And let me tell you, I can't begin to tell you how many times people have told me, man, that was so timely. I was not doing well. And hearing from you brought me back up and said, okay, I'm having a bad day, but I'm not having a bad life. I can continue on. And that's so important as well. And as we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, hopefully it won't be something that we have to absolutely talk about and remind people of. It's my hope that it'll just become something. We've got a long ways to go, my friend, long ways to go. But I think we can get there if we all work together. I agree, my friend. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Now, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Oh, thank you. So you can just find me on LinkedIn. If you type in Edward Gonzalez NASA, you'll find me. If you can find me on Instagram, I'm just Eddie from NASA, one word. I'm not really active on Twitter, and I'm also on Facebook. And if you send me a direct message, I will respond to you. Amazing. And 
there you have it, folks. Someone out there just like us working hard at making diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility for all a reality. Thank you so much for joining us today, Edward. And there you have it, folks. The truth according to Edward Gonzalez. Have a great day. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Our show is sponsored by Discourse. We build belonging into the DNA of DEI. You can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our YouTube channel, Discourse Agency. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave a review, drop a comment, and most importantly, share it with a fellow human. Thank you so much for your support. And remember, your truth is your experience. Bye for now.